Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're continuing our study through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at the first 16 verses of chapter 7. Let's go ahead and begin now with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your providence and your kindness, and we thank you for the sufficiency of your word. Help us to grow in Christ-likeness, help us to grow in humility, help us to grow in our knowledge of Christ, make us into a humble people, make us into people who are long-suffering, make us into people who know your word and are willing to defend it. I pray that you would make us more like Christ each day. Help us as we look at this text in front of us, that we might understand its application for our lives. In Christ's name, amen. In 1787, the Shaker community established its first permanent residence in the United States. They peaked uh, in the mid-1800s, And they claimed, at their peak, a following of about 6,000 people. They were, I don't know if many people know this, but they were an industrious people, and they, in many ways, were ahead of the culture around them. The Shakers were responsible for inventing the circular saw and the clothespin. Uh, One article says this about the Shaker community. It says, The New Hampshire Shakers owned one of the first cars in the state and rigged up electricity in their own village while the state capitol building was still burning gas. So they were ahead of those around them. They were known uh, for their high-quality furniture, and you can still buy today knockoff uh, Shaker-style furniture. But perhaps uh, more than anything else, the Shakers were known for their celibacy and refraining from marriage. And so it should come to us as no surprise that for this reason, their community has gone extinct. There are, from what I can find, if, if, uh, if the information is up to date, it was actually very hard for me to find any information. I believe there's two Shakers left. As of 2017... There were two left, and I could not find anything between 2017 and today to say if those two had passed or not. Um, But there's a village in Maine where these two, again, as of 2017, were living. And according to their website, which they do have a website, and I looked at their website, they are accepting uh, new applications for anyone who would like to join their community. So if anyone here is interested in that, I can point you to their website. And No. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it comes in no surprise that they are where they are today. The main group today that I am aware of, uh, at least the main group, I'm, there's always little groups here and there, but the main group that I'm aware of today that would advocate abstaining from marriage and celibacy would be uh, the Roman Catholic community. And as you know, this is not a universal requirement for all Catholics, but it is something for those who 
are seeking a position in the priesthood or someone who wants to be a nun or something of that nature, they would um, advocate for uh, not getting married on celibacy in that context. Other than that, the problem or the main problem that Paul is going to address for us in this chapter in 1 Corinthians is probably not a very widespread problem today, although it does exist in pockets. It is interesting to observe that the problem facing the Corinthians last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the problem facing the Corinthians today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 are opposite problems. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the issue was that the Corinthian Christians wanted to indulge in unrestrained sexual activity. The issue in 1 Corinthians 7 is that the Corinthian Christians wanted to practice a complete and total sexual abstinence. Now, it would make sense that within the same church body, you would have factions of people that would be kind of going off in clicks in different directions. And so it makes sense that these two opposite problems could come from the same church because some might struggle with this particular problem and some might have that particular problem. Um, this, of course, is just the natural way of things. We, uh, as individuals, tend to uh, adopt different beliefs and maybe go off into different cliques, and that uh, just um, really characterizes, I think, the church today as a whole. So the question is, who was right? Which group in the church in Corinth was correct? Well, Paul already told, and we saw this last week in 1 Corinthians 6, that the indulgent crowd was in the wrong, okay? Paul had addressed clearly that what they were doing with this unrestrained sexual activity was something clearly wrong. The question now is, what will he say to this abstinence crowd? And while, again, uh, last week's problem is probably more prolific in our culture than today's particular issue, we will see, I think, some relevant applications uh, for us today. As Christians, we have a tendency to lean in a direction. We have a tendency to kind of get sucked into a ditch on one side or the other. Some Christians have a tendency to feel a pull towards libertine values. We saw this last week. Remember, this was the group that were the quote-unquote free thinkers, the libertines, the people who were tired of all the rules, and now we just want to live unrestrained in any way that we want, giving into all of our passions and our desires. They reason, or at least today oftentimes reason, that, well, Christ has set me free, and so now I can do Literally, whatever I want. Christ paid for that sin so I could sin in that way. Some Christians, on the other hand, feel a pull towards uh, more of the legalistic side of things. And sometimes this is evidenced by the fact that they become very concerned or alarmed when they hear too much talk about grace, too much talk about God's sovereignty. They feel comfortable with the list of rules. And just give me the list, just tell me what I have to do, and I'm, I'm good to go. That's all I need. Now, we have already discussed, and we're not going to discuss again, how legalism and libertine values really are one and the same with just different wrapping paper. Um, Listen to the last couple messages uh, if you're interested in hearing more about that. Uh, What I do want to mention here is that I think that biblical preaching, if if we are preaching faithfully, expositing, faithfully 
teaching the Word of God week after week, there's going to be a tendency that at some point or another, biblical teaching is going to offend both crowds of people, just in different ways and on different Sundays. The uh, biblical preaching for the libertines is going to have too much, thus saith the Lord. And it's going to be something that makes that person a little squeamish. You're, You're giving me too much of this. Aren't we free from that? That's what the libertine is going to struggle with. And then, uh, on the other hand, for the legalists, there's going to be too much, Christ has set you free. The gospel has freed you to live in Christ. And so, perhaps, maybe, one marker of a healthy church is that you're going to find that on some Sundays, one group is going to be offended with this particular thing, and other Sundays, someone else is going to be offended by it. In other words, both legalists and antinomians are going to find something to be upset about. And yet the Bible, interestingly enough, brings these two realities together and teaches us that because we are free in Christ, therefore we go and obey Christ. We seek to be biblical in all that we do, not catering to either error, but striving simply for the truth of the word. And, and I, wa- I want that to kind of characterize the way we look at the text in front of us today, that we're not seeking to uh, adopt the values of the libertine. We're not seeking to adopt the values of the legalist. We're simply just trying to say this is what the Bible says. Let's read the text in front of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to the husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not, or she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. For if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This passage is a little bit personal today. We're going to look at the following outline. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, concerning obligations. This is specifically between the married. Verses 8 through 9, we're going to see concerning the unmarried. Then in verses 10 through 11, instructions concerning the married. And then in verses 12 through 16, concerning divorce. We get to the part of this letter where Paul is addressing specific questions from the Corinthians. They have given to him basically either some list somewhere or somehow communicated with Paul. Here are some questions that we have for you. And we read right off the bat in verse 1 their question. Uh, The question is, as Paul summarizes, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, now concerning, I'm getting to what you wrote, I'm getting to your, uh, your questions, and here it is, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Literally, it says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, and so obviously, because this is talking about sexual relations, ESV has rendered it that way. Paul is responding to this group of Christians who are advocating for abstinence by reminding them that marriage and the sexual relationship within marriage is not inherently bad as they may think it to be. Now, Gnosticism, uh, as we understand it, really did not come about to the second century. But we do wonder, uh, and, and historians think, that perhaps maybe there was an early form of Gnosticism in the first century. Basically, Gnosticism said that spiritual is good and physical is evil. And so there were really two kinds of camps in the Gnostic community. Those who believed that all it's only the spiritual things are good and all the physical things are bad and evil. There were two camps. Either... If you believed in Gnosticism, either you would believe in indulging the physical because, well, physicals, it's going away, it doesn't matter, it's not permanent, it's evil, then that really means there's no morality tied to it and I can do whatever I want physically. Others reasoned, who were Gnostics, reasoned that, well, because the physical is evil and the bad, I have to get myself away from that as much as possible. So, so monasticism really is kind of an outflow of this, that everything in the body is bad and I have to live this really uh, austere lifestyle where I deny myself any kind of pleasure possible. And so we can see really this latter view coming out in the Corinthians. Whether it was some sort of early Gnosticism or not, uh, it was at least kind of a rejection of the physical. Paul uh, reminds them, that this is the physical is not inherently bad. In verse 2, he says, Because of the temptation of sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, uh, I want to make a distinction here. Paul is saying that marriage is a legitimate means to help us avoid temptation. He's saying that this is a legitimate function within marriage that we can avoid temptation by getting married. Uh, We live in a very sexualized culture, as the Corinthian Christians did. Temptations today abound, and temptations did then as well. And one thing that God has given us, according to Paul here, to help combat illegitimate sexual expression is legitimate sexual expression. There is no shame within marriage, 
for a husband and wife to know that they are helping one another avoid sexual temptation. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. That is part of the blessing of marriage. And so spouses are not to despise one another in this area. And I do want to say, though, and I want to clarify that this teaching by Paul is part and parcel of a larger framework on a biblical understanding of marriage. I know that perhaps there may be some parts of this passage today that would come across to us as somehow offensive, but we have to understand that this is part of a bigger picture here. So here's what I'm saying. Help in resisting sexual temptation is not the purpose of marriage. Okay? This is not what Paul is teaching us because you have to take all of Scripture as a whole, particularly Ephesians chapter 5, which really hits on the purpose of marriage, which is to picture Christ and the church to the world. Okay? But that should not make us chafe at the fact that God has given to us something in marriage to help us in this particular way. Help to resist temptation is not the purpose of marriage, but it is part of marriage. Now, I do want to say more on this, but we're going to say more on that when we get to verse 9, because it's going to talk about this a little bit more. Suffice it to say for now, simply this. God uses marriage in our lives for our sanctification in more than one way. Marriage sanctifies us. This is one way. We could talk about lots of other ways that marriage sanctifies us. Because of this, and because of this fact that one of the the, the reasons for marriage is to help us in this way, Paul gives to us certain commands in verse 3. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Literally, this verse says to give back that which is owed. Within marriage, husbands and wives owe this particular uh, thing to one another. They owe intimacy to one another. This means, because that it is owed back and forth, that husbands and wives are not permitted to use this as a tool for manipulation or as a bribe. The reason for this admonition is because of the universal principle in verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There is a mutual authority in this area. There are mutual obligations in this area. Paul says that you are not permitted to withhold this from your spouse. Paul's strength in telling unmarried couples to abstain is matched by his strength in telling married couples to proceed. The abundance of no in all of the sexual morality of the culture, uh, is met by an abundance of yes in the legitimate way that God has given this to us. There is, here in this text in front of us, a legitimate place for this, and Paul advocates for this to be a regular part of marriage. Now, there are lots of other things we could say from this uh, passage here, and I want to briefly hit on something that I think is uh, kind of important. Um, because we don't want to abuse Scripture in any way. Um, This passage is not giving permission for some kind of a sexual dictatorship, okay? This is not what this passage is teaching. There is a right way and a wrong way to go about this particular 
uh, uh, part of marriage, the husband is to treat his wife like a lady. There is to be respect. There is to be a mutual love for one another. And I will say that one of the things in our current culture is that the pornography industry has trained men and women to objectify one another. Men and women are trained to think of one another as objects. And this is completely antithetical to Scripture. This is not what this passage is teaching us. Uh, Husbands and wives are to develop a relationship with one another. There is no place for selfishness in marriage. And Paul's point, really, is not to trace out every last detail here, but to simply observe this. If we could say just in a general principle form, celibacy within marriage is not only unhealthy, but it is a sin, barring circumstances where God has providentially hindered this to not be possible. There are circumstances where God has providentially hindered. When you get married, you are making a commitment to one another to continue in intimacy. Husbands and wives have mutual obligations that they have to fulfill. But Paul does give a caveat, and that is in verse 5. He says this, Do not deprive one another except, here's the caveat, perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then... Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul gives three conditions for uh, uh, withstanding. He says, one, it is mutually agreed upon. Number two, it's for a limited time. And number three, it's for the purpose of spending more time in prayer. Then he exhorts them to come back together again soon. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, if Paul had his way, he says, I wish you all were like me. I wish you all were unmarried. He says this in verses 6 through 7. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, Paul is going to develop this further in chapter 7 that we'll get to later um, in a future message, Lord willing. Um, And so we won't reveal everything that he's going to say there. But basically what Paul is doing is saying that marriage involves a commitment of time that could be used in single devotion to the Lord. When you are married, you have more obligations than someone who is not married. And so what Paul will say later is, I wish that everyone were like me, Because then you could simply serve the Lord with just an undistracted lifestyle. Again, he will develop this a little bit further. This is not um, a command that we are not permitted to marry, uh, as we know, but just a concession, as Paul says here. This is Paul's instruction on commitments within marriage. Now he transitions to commands to the unmarried in verses 8 through 9. We read this in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And again, this is anticipating his later command. And I'm going to just go ahead and give this to you. In verse 32, Paul says this later. 
I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you. He's not saying you have to do this but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul is saying, again, I, I wish that you were like this, but you don't have to be. And he says, it would be better for you to marry than to burn with passion. Um, I, I mentioned that we were going to come back to this point because Paul returned to it here. Uh, the fact that marriage is a uh, legitimate way to avoid temptation. Uh, he brought it up earlier. He brings it up again here in verse 9. And I, I, th- I think that um, some, some who would respond to this might simply say, uh, well, that's just Paul. Um, I think we need to be careful in clarifying what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. I am aware of a practice that some churches do where they take young men who are given over in addiction to pornography and they encourage them to get married and they don't tell that woman about that addiction, okay? That is an abuse of this passage, okay? This passage is, is not... Paul is not objectifying anybody here. Because there is a legitimate way to curb temptation does not mean that those who are given over into complete chaotic sin can just, uh, they need help, okay? And, and, and let, me just, let, me, let me just pause here for a second, okay? If you are someone who is struggling with pornography, get help. This is not a joke. This is not a game. This is, this is dead serious. If, if you're a man, I'm happy to help you. If you are a woman, there are women in the church who can help you. This is not a game to play with. You get burned when you play with fire. And we are not to take this and be flippant about this and to say, well, uh, I'm, I'm given over to fornication and let me just get married so that fixes everything. If you have an addiction going into marriage, you will have that addiction in marriage. It happens because the problem is not a marriage problem. The problem is a lust problem. And if you have lust... That's a problem. There is a difference here. Paul is talking about people. Paul is talking about people who are struggling and saying, "This is a desire that I have." He's not saying. He's not talking to people who are totally given over to fornication. There's a difference in those two particular things. Uh, this this is this is problematic. That those who think that 
solving, whether it's a, a porn addiction or whatever it is, thinking that I'm just going to fix this with marriage. One, men and women who are getting married should always know if there are any sexual sins. I encourage that in premarital counseling um, to, to make sure that you have there is a time where you have this conversation together with one another. Um, there is a difference between having this desire, as Paul is saying here, and having an addiction or worse fornication. Those who do, in Paul's words, burn with passion, uh, should get married. The sexual union in marriage is, again, not the end purpose of marriage, but it is a help in marriage. But marriage also does not save you from your sin. Who saves us from our sin? Christ. Christ saves us from our sin. And so whether we are married, whether we are not married, who do we need? We need Christ. Those who are actively sinning prior to marriage are going to find that post-marriage they still struggle with the same sins. In other words, those who are sinning in this way before marriage need to get help. This is part of what this body is for, is to encourage one another as we are struggling with various sins. And by the way, it doesn't have to be me, okay? You can go to one another and get help in these areas. This is Paul's instructions to the unmarried. He tells them, I'd rather you didn't get married, but... If you, in his words, burn with passion, then it would be better to get married than not to get married. Now he shifts to his instructions to the married. This is in verses 10 through 11. He says, To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Uh, This is a call not to get divorced. That's simply what he's saying here. Don't divorce. This stems from the intent behind Genesis 2.24. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. If, if she does get a divorce, the admonition then is not to get remarried or else repair the relationship with her husband and restore that. Then he gives to us instructions concerning divorce itself a little more directly. One should not seek out a divorce. Paul says, however, if the other spouse initiates it, then you are permitted to go through with it. So he says this, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, one technical note here. Uh, Paul begins this section with a kind of confusing statement where he says, I, 
not the Lord. Did you catch that? <laughs> I, I'm saying this, not the Lord. Um, this has been the cause of a lot of discussion. I would suggest that this is not a statement that is meant to be taken that this paragraph is uninspired in your Bible. So Paul is not saying, look, just take a magic marker and in your New Testament, circle this paragraph and just write uninspired in the margin. Um, there are some that would take it that way. I don't think that that's how Paul is intending us to take this. And I think the reason for that is because of Paul's earlier statement in verse 10, where he says, what? The opposite of this. What, what is it? Not I, but the Lord. So he says, here's a command, not I, but the Lord. Here, here's a command, not the Lord, but I. And he's inserting both of these statements. And so what exactly is he getting at here? Um, I would suggest to us that Paul's earlier statement in verse 10, where he said, not I, but the Lord, he was acknowledging that the command he was giving was a direct reference to a command of Christ. Christ, in his earthly life, specifically said this. And then in this one, he's saying, now Christ didn't specifically say this in his earthly life, but this is something that we can draw from Scripture as a whole. Uh, so in verse in the verse uh, earlier, he was giving a direct command from Christ. Here he isn't giving a direct command from Christ. I would suggest to us that that does not diminish the fact that this is in inspired scripture. This is given to us in inspired scripture, and thus this is as relevant as everything else in scripture. Basically, what is being addressed here is the reality that some believers are married to unbelievers, Okay. You have a believer and an unbeliever married together. What does the believer do? Do I divorce? Do I stay in this? How do I work this out? Paul is telling us, and Scripture is telling us here, that the believer should not initiate a divorce. The only way you can get a divorce is if the unbelieving partner wants to get a divorce. Then Paul says, just don't make a mess of this. Just if they're going to leave, then let them leave. Um, the reason for staying in the marriage union is something actually kind of very interesting and unique here. And again, a lot of cause for conversation. He says that you should stay married because the unbelieving spouse and the children are what? Made holy. Okay, so he's saying if you have a family... And you have a husband or wife that's a believer and a husband or wife that's an unbeliever. And you have children saying, as the believer, you should stay in that marriage because it makes your unbelieving spouse holy and it makes your children holy. Which is kind of odd. What does that mean? Does it mean that... It makes them saved or a believer in Christ? Is this another way we can come to Christ by having faith or marrying a believer? Is that a way, a legitimate way to salvation? No, it's not a legitimate way to salvation. Um, salvation, as we know, comes 
according to what? We've got the Reformation coming up here, okay? Is it 504? Is that what, what 504 you said, Todd? Uh, so what, what do we have? Salvation is by what? Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, glory of God alone. Okay. So salvation is by faith alone. Um, the atonement comes through that, uh, that regeneration. So this is not a way to salvation. I would suggest to us that the, the phrase that your children and spouse are made holy simply is a way of referring to the fact that there are thousands upon thousands, oftentimes just uh, not even perceived benefits of being in a home with a believer that, you are, that you're benefiting from. Let me give you an example of this. Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, it was destroyed, okay? But what did God promise to Abraham? I will spare that entire city if there's just 10 righteous people in that city. Now, all of those wicked people deserve to die. But those wicked people, if there were 10 righteous, which there weren't, if there were 10 believers in that city, those unbelievers would have benefited from them without even knowing it. Their lives would have been spared without even knowing it. The same is true in our families. While we may not always be able to perceive every single benefit and every single blessing, there are oftentimes invisible blessings in just ways that the Lord has blessed a home with a believer in it that that unbeliever is not even aware of. And so, so Scripture tells us, don't, don't leave that unless they are initiating it. And who knows? What does the text say? Maybe one day your spouse will come to Christ. Maybe one day your children as well. Maybe the Lord will use your influence in such a way as to bring them to salvation. You don't know. Only God knows. Leave that to him. And if your unbelieving spouse does want a divorce, then... He says, okay, just let that happen. All right, so where are we going to go from here? This has been a lot. Uh, 16 verses was kind of a lot for me to bite off, okay? A lot of instructions to husbands, wives, married, unmarried, all of this stuff. I want to remind us of 1 Timothy chapter 4 to kind of maybe bring us back to, I think, the gist of what this passage is teaching us. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The question posed to Paul was surrounding the inherent value of abstinence. 
Paul gives them a sharp rebuke on that. If you are married, then he says, you should be engaging in uh, this particular relationship as a married couple. There is a place for God-ordained intimacy in marriage, and it is a good thing created by God, as we see in 1 Timothy. Remember that last week there was the indulge crowd, and this week there is the abstain crowd. And Paul deals with both of those by saying, you're both wrong. (laughs) You both are missing something here. We we need to avoid these errors. We need to avoid the uh, just free license to do whatever I want. We need to avoid the legalistic mindset as well. And Paul gives that to us clearly in the passage in front of us. What this should point us to is the inherent goodness of God's blessings within God's boundaries. Every good gift that God has given to us, we can celebrate. Whatever that is. We can enjoy a sunset. We can enjoy good food. We don't have to become monks, right? We can enjoy everything that God has given to us. But we have to uh, value and appreciate God's blessings within God's boundaries. We celebrate the good gift that God has given to us as humans made in his image. And we delight in the fact that this reflects God's goodness in so many other ways, such as, of course, salvation. I have four points of application for us today. Married couples are to pursue loving and sacrificial intimacy with one another. Number two, some unmarried should remain single for devotion from the Lord. Some unmarried should pursue marriage. I know that's probably not too helpful, (laughs) but that's what the text says. Um, And then flee fornication. In all of this, We need Christ. We need God's wisdom. We need to pursue that which God has told us, you can have this, and pursue that in a God-glorifying way. And what God has said, no, this is not okay, we say okay. Our obedience has to be connected with our love for Christ. That's how we avoid these twin pitfalls of legalism and antinomianism, right? We avoid it by knowing that the fact that God has freed us does not mean that we should go back in slavery again. The fact that God has freed us means he's freed us to love him, to obey him, and to enjoy that. And there are blessings in that. If you don't know Christ, I may encourage you to repent, trust in him today, and experience his good blessings that he's given to us. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for the gospel in this text. Help us now to apply it, to love you, to love others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.